COVID-19, oh, we need a vaccine at this moment. It means everything. Please wear your mask and stay six feet back. Total shutdown. COVID-19. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Two Middle-Aged Men in Cleveland. Ken Dworznik, Ted Klopp, bring you more laughs. Maybe you'll cry. Maybe you'll just want to hear a van story. A lot to <laughs> offer here on episode 14, Ted. How are uh, you doing, plus, sir? I'm, I'm good. How are you? we got plenty to offer this week. This is, we've got a lot of interesting things, but episode 14, we're three and a half months in. This is pretty amazing. Well, I've been getting a lot of feedback. You know, we've had a lot of people that have liked us on Facebook. We do now also have an Instagram page, so make sure you go on that as well. So, what is our Instagram? Two M A M I C seventeen o two. Okay, and our Twitter is at two M A M I C L E. So, as always, we do have some Facebook likes. Patrick Anderson, Dusty Cover. Keith Lockwood, Joe Rasso, and Russell Fisher. Thanks to those folks for stopping by the Facebook page and giving us a like. Hopefully you will as well. And we'd love to interact with you on any of that social media. And maybe we'll uh, read some emails or some Twitter messages or whatnot at some point here on the show. We do check our voicemail here on the show. And I think we're going to do that today, are we not? We do. We have a young fan that sent a message. Oh, that should be uh, very interesting. We're reaching all audiences and senior citizens, middle-aged folks like ourselves, and the younger generation, 14 and under. Okay. That's what we want. There we go. Very good. That'll make uh, the advertisers happy. Yes, they will. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, you can ask us a question by going to anchor.fm slash 2-M-A-M-I-C-L-E. There's a link right there little plus sign with the word message. Click that. You can leave us a message, ask a question, and we will answer your question when we check our voicemail on a future episode. So how was your week? It was actually really good. The weather was hot. Then we had the end of the week. We had the rain. I did get golf in before you can even ask. I actually have two golf stories. Oh, good. Two golf stories. All right. First, I had the opportunity to play with my children. We played nine holes at a very cool course called the North Olmstead Golf Club. It's a nine-hole course. We've played there many of times. And it was fun. It was myself and the two of them. And they played like a scramble against me. So it was not a nice competition. But we did have a victory that day. My daughter was having some trouble with her swing. The issue that we've been working on for a while is that she would take the club, raise it all the way to the top, of her swing and hold it there for like three or four seconds and then try to hit the ball. I mean, that, that's difficult. Myself and my son are like, hey, Maddie, why don't you just continue your swing? She does it for the first time. And lo and behold, when she hits the ball, we're about 90 yards away, puts it right on the green off the tee. I'm like, mm. you've got to be kidding me. I had the same shot and I put it far right. My son put it out there. He put a little bit short. He was there. But her first shot, when she just does the full swing right on the green. So that was fun. We had a great day. And then the second golf story was also from the weekend where my fiance, who's learned to play golf, we're very competitive when it comes to golf. So my, my goal is to shoot about 40 and A1's goal is to shoot 50. We uh-huh. have not succeeded when we've done that yet, but we're getting closer. So we play at a course, yep. A1 is playing really well. She pars two consecutive holes mm. to the point where she's like in the low 30s heading into the final two holes. Wow. So basically all she's got to do is get less than double par in both holes and she's going to hit 50. I'm excited for it, and I'm also a little nervous because she's beating me at the time. I mean, let's be honest, <laughs> you don't want that. Well, just like many people have played golf before, you could play so well for so long, and you can lose it so fast. I oh, felt no. so bad for her because the last two, <laughs> last two holes, she had over double par. Oh, no. So it was a little tense, let's just say, for the last <laughs> half hour of the round, and there wasn't much talking to or talking at all at the end, but luckily drinks and food always help. So that lifted the spirits after the round. But yes, golf is, is a great game. But as I've said to many people, there's reasons I'm playing golf at a public course on a Friday night at 5.30, as opposed to playing a really nice course during the course of the day or anything like that. Basically <laughs> saying I'm not a professional, nor am uh-huh. I ever going to be. So, but it was fun. It was a very good time. How about yourself? Come on. Do you, you got to keep the streak going. 
Do you have a van story? I do have a van story. Yes. We had uh, some playoff baseball games this week. And after the first playoff baseball game, we went for ice cream. Well, after the second playoff game that we won to put us in the finals, people were not going to ice cream or anything because we had another game. So we were driving home, and I decided we could go through the drive-thru at Dunkin' Donuts, get a donut for everybody, celebrate. So we go through the drive-thru. I order, and then I go to make the turn to go around to the drive-thru window, and the steering wheel will not turn very easily. It is as though the power steering has just disappeared. Non-existent. Non-existent. I, I mean, I was like wrestling a bear to get that thing to turn. I obviously immediately knew there was a problem. Got the car around, got the donuts, went home on some side streets so that I wouldn't have any trouble, and <laughs> pulled into the driveway, popped the hood, and the power steering container was bone dry. So I know what the initial remedy is, but the bigger question is, why is it bone dry? Got some power steering fluid, filled it up, took it to the shop. Needs a new rack and pinion. Oh, lordy, lordy. Yep. So you wanted a van story. You got a van story. Now, Ken, there was one other thing that came up with uh, the baseball this week, and I just want to get your take on this or your thoughts. You know, it's been hot out. So my wife got these neck fans. Are you familiar with a neck fan? I've seen it, never used it. This is the most amazing thing. I feel like an old man, but I don't really care because it keeps you cool. It goes around your neck. We got two different models. One just hangs around your neck and it blows up towards your face. And the other one goes around your neck. There's two fans and they're posable. So you can aim them right at your face or you know wherever you want on your head. They're tremendous. So, That's outstanding. Yeah. I think I have something that could go with that for you as well. That would be perfect for the next time you go to your son's baseball game. And what would you that need be? to get that helmet that actually has like uh, two drink holders in it with the straws. Yeah. So I've all set that with the straws and make sure you're drinking beer. That would That's, be I like that. absolutely perfect. I show yes. up with neck fans and the beer in the helmet. <laughs> they won't let First me out of the ball. car. Oh, <laughs> uh, goodness. Well, hey. Did you know, Ken, that we have a new podcast outlet that we're on now? There's a rumor about that, but I want to hear more about it. We are now on iHeartRadio. You can now listen to us on iHeartRadio. That's awesome. The the podcast outlets just keep lining up. Very exciting. Is that number nine for us now? I think it's number 10, actually. So no excuses for anyone not listening to us. There's plenty of ways to find us. Well, coming up on the show... We're going to talk with one of the original members of the band Devo, Gerald Casale. Did you know, Ken, that the group was formed at Kent State right around at the time of the shootings in May of 1970 there? Uh, I did not. It's it's an amazing story. We're going to hear how that affected the name of the band and find out what the song Whip It and the song Pretty Woman from Roy Orbison have in common. We're also going to have Klops Clips. We're going to check our voicemail, like we mentioned earlier. We'll have Where'd That Come From? and a whole lot more. And now, a woman's perspective. I only let crazy mama out every once in a while. Just enough so my kids remember she exists. This has been A Woman's Perspective. Blah blah blah. 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 Correct Give the massive slip. Step on the Break your mama's back. Our guest today was born in Ravenna, Ohio, attended Kent State, and is a founding member of the band Devo. He's also a music video director and a winemaker. We welcome Gerald Casale of Devo to the program. Hello. He's singer, songwriter, composer, bass guitarist, and synthesizer. All part of your duties in the band. Obviously, Devo very well known for the 
unique headwear. But let's talk yeah. about the origin of the band. And my uh, research tells me that it can be traced to some satirical art pieces that you were making with fellow band member Bob Lewis back at Kent State. Is that true? Yeah, it really did start as an art movement. I mean, I had a double major. I was doing fine art and I was doing 20th century English literature. And I kind of gravitated by my senior year to just wanting to do art. And I thought if it failed, I would fall back by becoming a professor and teaching art, like a lot of failed artists. <laughs> and, uh, Bob and I concocted this theory about de-evolution in the aftermath of the horror and, and trauma of Kent State May 4th killings of the students. I knew two of those students personally, Jeffrey Miller, Allison Krauss. I had actually admitted them walked them through their curriculums as freshmen because that was my job. And I was probably 30 feet from Jeffrey. He was behind me. Wow. So that event yeah. had a big effect on the formation and name of the band. Uh, you yes. started to talk about it. Can you explain a little bit more Devo short well, evolution, right? You know, you, you know the situation that this country is in now with extreme polarization and cultural wars. Well, that's nothing new to me. That's exactly what I was living through and in the middle of from about 1967 through 72. And that was the Vietnam War. That was Nixon ending up in his impeachment. It was the expansion of the war into Cambodia, which we were protesting on May 4th, 1970. A lot of things that just sound like, oh, you're talking about now. After that, those killings, you realized everything you've been told is wrong. It isn't like there's a few bad apples in the barrel. American exceptionalism is great. We were the best on earth and we were moral and above board. It's like, no, you start to dig and you start to learn. And it's like the whole thing's been an illusion. So we said, what are we looking at here? We're not looking at progress. We're not looking at evolution. We're looking at de-evolution. Ha, ha, ha. You know, mm -hmm. and we started calling it de-evolution. That's, that's outstanding. Many people that are huge Devo fans, one of the first songs that people think about is Whip It, but obviously you guys have songs that's good, Girl You Want, Satisfaction, just to name a few. But talking about your biggest hit, obviously made number one on the Billboard chart and spent 25 weeks on the chart. Right. You helped write that song. Did you have any idea at that particular time when you were writing that song that it would catch on the way it did? No. You can accuse us of being artists for real. Mark and I couldn't sit down and even think about writing a hit. We didn't think like that. Sure. You know, nobody said, okay, this is going to be a hit. We just wrote things that we liked. We had ideas. We trusted our ideas. We trusted originality, whereas most people didn't. So we were, weren't afraid to go there. You know, people would go, why are you doing that? Man, that's stupid. People are going to laugh at you. As a matter of fact, the record company, they were going, girl, you want, that's your hit. And we thought, okay, that's what they think. We like that. We like it a lot. And of course, it did sound more accessible, more familiar musically, structurally. That's what Warners did. They put that out there and it promptly stiffed. And in Florida, a guy named Cal Rudman, who was a regional radio programmer, he decided, whip it. He went nuts for Whip It on his own. And we were just getting ready to tour when people said, hey, this guy is playing in four or five states now. He, he, he got it up into New York City. And suddenly we're canning the 500-seat the clubs. We're going to 3,000-seaters, 5,000-seaters. And suddenly Devo's a big deal. But all we were doing is what we had always done. So the show that we had ready was a real show, really theatrical, very Devo and very unique and original. But now there were a lot of eyeballs on it, which was fantastic because now everybody knew about it. And it just it was night and day, flipped everything around. You talked about your writing of lyrics and did they make sense, didn't they make sense, or what did they mean? Can you talk a little bit about what the lyrics to Whip It mean? For that one, I was just having fun because I was inspired. I've been reading Gravity's Rainbow by Thomas Pynchon. And he was making fun of the uh, structures of limericks and short poems, you know, doggerel, limerick. 
and he was also attacking the American dream. You know, this, you're number one, there's nobody else like you, you know, Horatio Alger, right? I thought, you know what? This guy is so amazing and so smart. I'm going to do my own version of one of his limericks in, in Gravity Rainbow. And it's going to be about insane optimism and, you know, you can do it. Nobody else like you stuff. Wow. You know, I put that on the book and wrote those lyrics in one night. And there were some pieces and fragments of music that Mark had been doing at home that we started working on. And all I was doing was playing um, less notes than the figure that Mark had come up with, where he, he said he was mutating Oh Pretty Woman by uh, Roy Orbison. So what he did is he put a space in it. Wow, that's amazing. That is absolutely amazing. And so I left a I left a hole so the song wouldn't be busy because that was already so busy. So I went and made kind of R and B. And then I started trying my lyrics and realized that the best thing was a call and response. So Mark and I trade off. And then I actually sung the chorus. That's me, but he sung it live because there is no way to play that bass line and sing that chorus at the same time. <laughs> One thing that obviously when people think of Devo, being recognized as a pioneer, and you kind of hit on this before, a pioneer in the area of music videos. Yeah. How did that idea for music videos come about? Well, of course, we thought we were making short films. And uh, it, it came about because another good friend of ours in the circle that I had met in 1968, Chuck Statler, he was a part-time student at Kent State University who lived in Akron. And he and I started making little films where I was the on-camera actor. I had ideas. He had ideas. And he was making little short films. And when when he saw Mark and I starting to formulate this Devo thing in the early 70s, and we'd always talk about making films, he said, well, let's really do it. And he and I sat down and mapped out what became that 10-minute film, The Truth About Devolution, and then Chuck took it to the Ann Arbor Film Festival and submitted it. Wow. And it got huge response, huge. People were all talking about it. Then the big boys were out. Then it really started happening. Gerald, to show your talent, not too long ago, a few years ago, you opened a wine company. Yeah. 50 by 50. How did you start the interest in wine and, uh, and opening your own wine company? How did that whole thing start? Well, you know, I can, I can attribute that to Devo, too, because Devo gets signed to a record label. We move out of Akron, Ohio to Los Angeles, and we have some money in our pockets, some spending money, and we're landing in one of the two epicenters of the whole food revolution. Well, I was really the only guy out of we that, in Devo that was excited about that. And immediately I took to wine. Then I took wine classes to find out how wine's made. And so I never got the chance to move beyond collecting and loving and knowing about wine until 2012, when a friend of mine who's a restoration architect with deep pockets said, hey, do you want to make wine? You're always talking about it. And I go, yes. He forked over a little dough to capitalize it. And I found the best grapes I could in the best place I could for Pinot Noir, because I'm a Pinot Noir junkie. Uh, that's my favorite grape. My fruit comes from a single vineyard in Sonoma County. I make Pinot Noir. I make a rosé of Pinot Noir. And I'm about to make white Pinot Noir, where they separate mm. the juice from the <laughs> skin immediately. And it's it's got a taste that's so much more interesting and refined than Chardonnay. It's amazing. I have heard, uh, maybe you can tell me if this is true or not, that the best way to make a small fortune in the wine business is to start with a large fortune. Yeah. Is that true? Yeah, that's right. That's right. I'm, I'm still in the hole. Okay. But I, I, just before COVID-19, I had worked my way to even, meaning I had enough accounts of people buying my wine and enough people buying it online that it was evening out. And of course, what happens? You all know what happened. Yep. Well, Gerald, appreciate it. We're going to have you back in a few minutes for the game time segment. We're looking forward to that. So thank you for your time, and we'll, we'll see you in a couple thank minutes. You. Have you 
heard about Anchor, I'm not talking about the one for a boat. This is the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money for your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Time now for this week's collection of Klops Clips, where we take a look at the odd happenings in the news world. A Ravenna woman was caught shoplifting from a Walmart. Employees actually spotted her entering the store with empty bags. She filled them and then tried to leave. The odd part here is that after being caught, police tallied the value of the merchandise she admitted to trying to take. She was surprised to hear how much it was. More than $435 worth. Maybe that's just a test. She was testing to see what she can do with the amount of bags she had. There it's just go. a test. Yeah, for future reference. That's correct. Each bag is worth $210. You got it. Testing it out. More than 175 Rhode Island residents have been sent tax refund checks signed by Walt Disney and Mickey Mouse. Oh. The Rhode Island Division of Taxation uses signatures on test files. These, though, were mistakenly printed on real checks and then mailed. The checks have been voided, and new ones will be sent, signed by General Treasurer Seth Magaziner and State Controller Peter Keenan. This is uh, two stories in a row. Once again, the common theme, this is just a test. We're just testing. It's not the real thing, it's just a test. Just a test. Concerns about the coronavirus have led to some interesting cleaning measures in South Korea. One person put an unknown number of bills into a washing machine to try to remove traces of COVID-19. The result was a lot of damaged money, some too damaged to exchange, according to the Bank of Korea. Another person put bills into a microwave to try and remove any traces of the coronavirus. They caught on fire. The bank is recommending against these two sterilization techniques. Do they also put aluminum foil in the microwave to see what happens? Are these the same people? <laughs> Could be. What uh, is going on? How about I, cement in the washer? Maybe you're going to do that. Put some but, cement in the washer yeah, to see what happens? sure. Why not? I don't think that'll end well. Nope. I wonder if any of these tests will be false positive or positive negative or double counted or anything like that. Oh. Two young children at the Museum of Glass in Shanghai were chasing each other around one of the exhibits when they ran into the case holding a $64,000 replica of the Enchanted Storybook Castle at Shanghai Disneyland. The castle was severely damaged. The castle was a gift from the Spanish artisans, the Arribas Brothers, they gave it to the museum in 2016. It featured, past tense, featured over 30,000 individual pieces, took more than 500 hours to build, and weighed more than 130 pounds. It was decorated in 24 karat gold. The brothers hope to go to Shanghai once travel restrictions are lifted to try and make repairs. You have children, Ted, as I do. I. So if you have something that's that valuable, if two children can just run into it, I'm going with that you don't have the proper secure measures to make sure that this doesn't get broke. Am I right on that? I, you, you are correct. You are 100% correct. I will take it one step further. As a parent, knowing my three kids, there is no chance 
let me say again, no chance I will ever take our three boys to anything named the Museum of Glass. That is not a good idea. We will not be visiting that if we ever go to Shanghai. Bull in a china shop. Pretty much. Yeah, I don't understand that at all. Where are the parents at? <clears throat> just let uh, yeah, your kids right. run around too? That's in the mix too. Come on. Right. Now, pay attention here, Mr. Groom-to-be. Oh, here last, we go. Last week we had a story about a bride having guests broken into groups with group A getting invites and groups B and C having to wait for people in group A to say they couldn't come before getting an invite. This week, we have another bride with another questionable idea for giving guests a wedding invite. This UK bride has caused a stir because she's asking people to write an application essay to earn a spot on the wedding guest list. <laughs> Apparently, the, the original venue made the bride cut her guest list in half because of the coronavirus. So she sent out re-invites asking everyone to submit 250 word essays answering these two questions. Number one, why do you still want to celebrate this day with us? And number two, what will attending our wedding mean to you specifically? Among those unhappy at having to write essays to get on the guest list is the bride's sister saying she is, quote, really insulted. Is wow. this something that should I be preparing to write an essay if I want to attend your wedding? No, no, I want something simple, easy. I mean, here's the other thing. You're going to sit down. I wonder how many guests they invited. You have to sit down and read all these essays. I mean, that's not exactly going to take two seconds to do. This is like a college professor type of thing. I, this seems like too much. Why don't you just pick it out of a hat? Throw all the names in a hat, just pick them out. I hope no one's going to be offended. I'm not picking names out of a hat, but this seems like, once again, you must have a lot of time on your hands if you're sending something out like this and then going to read all these essays and then make a decision on who's coming, you need to find something else to do. How are your wedding plans coming at this point? Well, basically everything's done. It's just all about oh, the date. We moved cool. everything. We were supposed to be in uh, September this year. We moved it to June of next year just because we have people coming from out of town and flying and all that. But nobody had to write an essay. No one's in group A, B, or C. We. We have the people we're gonna invite and, and that's about it, making it easy. Do you think that as we get closer to your wedding, this will be a topic on the show similar to my band stories? I think so. Yeah, I mean, we, okay. We, I, I mean, there's not a lot, planning's very simple and we're doing simple stuff, but yeah, we can we can go week to week as we get closer. I'm looking keep everybody forward to informed. That. Well, uh, I'll have my essay ready if it's needed. Please. Congratulations to 14 year old Evan Bletcher, the Colorado teen, is now in the Guinness Book of World Records, owning the record for fastest time solving a Rubik's Cube while on a pogo stick. Bletcher says he actually beat the previous record time of 18.642 seconds on his second try after discovering there was such a record, but that attempt was not official. His official time in the record book is 16. 0.71 seconds. Who comes up with this? I know I've seen people work the Rubik's Cube very fast, but why does it have to be on a pogo stick? Now, is there like another Guinness Book of World Records, the fastest person to do the Rubik's Cube on a skateboard, on the unicycle, riding a horse? This seems like too much again. I mean, I, once again, impressive. He did this in 16 seconds, but come on. This sounds to me like, you remember the woman that would twirl the plates at halftime of the NBA games on the yes, sticks. Yes, I agree. Is there, yes. There's a world record for that, maybe. This sounds similar. Yeah, I, I'm just I'm just confused. I mean, the Rubik's Cube part's really cool. I just don't know why we have to do it on a pogo stick. But walking backwards, how about standing on your head? I mean, these are probably all Guinness Book of World Records. I'm not that familiar with it. it, it there's a possibility. We should look in the Guinness Book of World Records and see if there is a record we can go for. Oh, I definitely think we should do that. We could do something with a podcast, the fewest amount yeah. of people that have listened. Yeah, over the longest amount of time. That right. might be a good one. I can win hairiest person. I know. Hairiest person. Tightest shirt. Largest number of bad jokes in one podcast. Ugliest shoes. 
All right, congratulations to uh, Evan Fletcher. I hardly know him. And that is this week's collection of Klopp's Clips. It's time for Where'd That Come From? Where we take a common phrase, explain its meaning, and tell you the origin. This week's phrase is break the ice. Break the ice means to break off a conflict or commence a friendship. Back when ships were the only means of transportation or trade, there were times when they would get stuck during the winter because of ice formation. The receiving country would send small ships to break the ice, clearing the way for trade ships. This gesture of goodwill showed affiliation and understanding between two territories or countries. Break the ice. Now you know where it came from. Your call has been forwarded to an automatic voice message system. At the tone, please record your message. Are you ready, Ken? Do you have your phone handy because it's time to check our voicemail. Remember, you folks listening can leave us a voicemail, ask a question. You just go to anchor.fm slash 2-M-A-M-I-C-L-E, the number 2-M-A-M-I-C-L-E. There's a link there, the plus sign with the word message. Click that, leave us a message, and we will answer a question from you. You, right there, you, on a future episode of this you. very podcast. You. you. All right, let's listen to this week's voicemail. Hey, Ted and Ken, what are your favorite restaurants? Uh, this is a question that comes from a young listener, obviously. Uh, Does that young lady even have a phone? She, she's curious where we like to eat, Ken. I wonder where her parents are just allowing her to pick up the phone and make phone calls. I need well, to talk to the parents. Yeah, I wonder about that. Favorite restaurants. Okay, I will say in Cleveland. Well, first and foremost, I'll go with two different types. I'll go with the fine dining type of thing, and then I'll go with the casual restaurant. Absolutely. I was just going to say we should have a couple here. So, first of all, I must say that one of my favorite places to eat during the lunchtime or breakfast is a place called Danny's Deli off of East 17th Street. I absolutely love it. It's not a fancy place or anything like that, but gosh, their food is so good. The people are so nice. I've gone there quite often, certainly before the COVID situation and currently now and all that. So that's it's one of my favorite regular places to go. If I would say a fine dining place, I can name so many. There really is so many different good ones. One of my favorites for a long time has been a place called Lola. It's owned by Michael Simon. It's on East 4th Street. I've never had a bad meal there. The service is always very good. I have not obviously been there since the, the whole COVID situation, so I, I can't speak to where things are at now. But my gosh, they've always done a very nice job with their food. So I would say those two would be my two favorites. How about you, Mr. Klopp? Well, I will go with a simpler dining place first, and I'm going to choose Noble Beast. Oh. They have burgers there that are just fantastic. And the fries there, the spice that they put on them is just second to none. I could have a burger and fries from there every day of the week and twice on Sunday. By the way, their beer is really good too. Their beer is very good as well. Yeah, absolutely. As far as a fine dining place goes, if I'm picking a place downtown, probably be the Blue Point. That is a fabulous restaurant. And if I'm going with a place outside of the downtown area, it would be Delmonico's, baby. They have some fabulous lobster bisque. You can't go wrong at either of those locations. Those are top of the list in my book. So those are my choices. I wonder if that young lady has, uh, I'm going to guess she hasn't eaten at any of those locations, but maybe she will. No, I don't. I'm going to probably go with no on that. Maybe an outside shot at Danny's Deli. I've seen younger people in there, but the other places we named, I don't know. If she's at Noble Beast, there's something wrong. I'm going to throw that up right away. I think they might need to check IDs? That's correct. Yeah. Okay. A little underage stuff, which obviously doesn't happen over there. But uh, no, great, uh, great question. And once again, we appreciate another voice. And now, great moments 
in parenting. Number 284. We have workbooks for each of our boys for the grade level that they're entering. We try to have them do 15 minutes in the workbook each day. On Saturday, our soon-to-be third grader was working and he was supposed to write a sentence using at least three two-syllable words. When my wife checked his answers, she asked, why did he write, answers will vary? Then we checked the back of the book where the answer key is and found that the answer in the back of the book states, quote, answers will vary. Momentary disappointment in our son quickly turned into laughter. This has been great moments in parenting. That is a lot of fake news back there. That's a lot. You are fake news. Time now for game time and fake news. And Gerald Casale from Devo is back with us. Uh, some might suggest that the news is de-evolutionizing at some times, some, some points here in Devo. our uh, current climate, right? Devo. But nonetheless, I have three news stories. Two of them were published, and one of them I took the time and made up all by myself. So I'll read these three to you. And we will see if either of you are able to identify the fake news story correctly. And Gerald, I will tell you, Ken has yet to identify the <laughs> proper or the, the fake news story. It's a good shot of you beating me today, Gerald. There's no doubt it's going to happen. So. <clears throat> All right, we'll so see. here we go. Headline number one, stuffed animal turns into living unicorn. Six-year-old Haley Cunningham of Provo, Utah, has lots of stuffed animals in her bedroom. Her favorite is her unicorn named Blossom. She says she never used to be able to sleep without it, but now she can because the unicorn came to life. She dreamt the unicorn was alive one night, and when she woke up, it was. Her dad lived a small barn in the backyard where Blossom now lives. That is headline number one. Headline number two, woman gives birth to spatula. <laughs> Sheila Festoon of Balloon Falls, Pennsylvania, now has a whole spatula set, scrapers, brushes, and spoons. Dr. Andy Mulrooney is not surprised. He says she takes pills and they cause her to give birth to kitchen appliances and utensils every 30 days. Her disappointed husband says, quote, I was hoping for power tools. <laughs> <clears throat> That's headline number two. Here is headline number three. Possessed home flees exorcist. Father Jules Crusher was called to a home that the tenant says was possessed. He arrived with a briefcase carrying a Bible and a super soaker filled with holy water. When he sprayed the home, flames shot out the front door and the house became fully animated. It pulled itself out of its foundation and sprinted down the street, stopping at a local golf course where the priest blessed the sprinkler system and turned it on. The house collapsed, leaving wooden timbers in a mess on the 16th green. So there we are. Headline, let me review here real quick. Headline number one, stuffed animal turns into living unicorn. Headline number two, woman gives birth to spatula. And headline number three, possessed home flees exorcist. Gerald, what are you going to well, go with? Well, this is tough. <laughs> they did a better job than they do on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me on NPR. <laughs> Uh, I mean, these are all, of course, patently absurd, but you're saying that two of them were actually published. Two of them I found online, correct. Right, you found online two of yes. them. Yes, which, you know, if it's and, on the internet, believe, it must be true. Yeah, <laughs> and believe me, whichever one you concocted, that deserves to be published too. Yes. Um, God. Uh, I, I'm going to go with that you wrote the spatula story. Spatula story. Headline number two, woman gives birth to spatula. All right. You're in with headline number two. Ken? I'm having the same difficulties because whichever one that you wrote is, is very well written. You've done this to me twice already. But I am going to have to go with Gerald as well. I'm going to go with the woman gives birth to spatula is something made up. I don't know if I've heard of Balloon Falls, Pennsylvania. So I'm going to go with number two as well. All right. Well, Gentlemen, the fake news headline was headline number one. 
animal well, turns into living unicorn. See, that just sounds like something that would be in the Sun or the Inquirer, and well, and and it it matches with the magical thinking of the third headline, which is just absurd. <laughs> and so the so second true. one sounded like it could almost be true, except she would be dead. Yes. Uh, well, but okay. Well, Gerald, I don't want you to give away my uh, my sources here now with the Sun <laughs> and the National Enquirer, but you know. <laughs> Well, well, nonetheless, well, thank you. you thank you very job. much. Uh, and thanks for your time. We appreciate it. And best of luck with your wine company and continued success with your music and your music videos. Well, thanks for talking to me. Thank you, guys. Not a dad joke. Why don't eggs tell jokes? They'd crack each other up. That joke was horrible. Cleveland! This is for you! Ow! This Week in Cleveland History. Ted, it's time for another edition of This Week in Cleveland History. I'm not even going to ask you if you're ready. I'm just going to start reading. Thank Here you. August 5th, 1914. The first electric traffic light in the U.S. is installed at the corner of Euclid Avenue and East 105th Street in Cleveland. Invented by Garrett Morgan. When I have the opportunity to read these to everybody, I learn something each week. I had no idea that that occurred on East 105th Street in Euclid. I actually knew that from a trip on Lolly the Trolley. They talked about oh. that. So, How was Lolly? Lolly was good. The trolley was the good trolley? too. Yeah, it was good too. That is a fun time. I've done yes. that. Yes. All right, we moved to August 6, 1890. Future Hall of Fame pitcher Cy Young throws a three-hitter in his major league debut for the Cleveland Spiders in an 8-1 win over the Chicago Colts. Talk about hitting the ground running. Three-hitter no, in your debut. That's amazing. Cy Young... We talked about this last week. You know, obviously one of the greatest pitchers ever. I must do some research as well, as we talked about when we were having the discussion about maybe names of what the Cleveland Indians should be. Cleveland Spiders, that one year, they only won 20 games. So I don't know if that's the same year. Or maybe they only won games when Cy Young pitched. I'm not sure. I was sure. just going to say, you have to be really bad if you have Cy Young on your team and you only win 20 games. Well, the other thing you got to remember, too, is when they play doubleheaders, the pitchers threw both games. So <laughs> they'd have a really good shot because, obviously, I'm not sure who else they had at that time. Yeah. My gosh. But, yeah, once again, Cy Young, very impressive. First game throws a three-hitter. Amazing. Okay, Ted, we move to August 7th, 1967. Former Indians pitcher Jason Grimsley is born. Now, Jason is best known for his role in the 1994 bat burglary involving Albert Bell and an alleged cork bat that was taken away by umpires for examination by the league. Grimsley was the Indians player, this is classic, who crawled through a Comiskey Park air conditioning duct to reach the room where the confiscated bat had been secured. He took the questionable bat and replaced it. By the way, Grimsley is from Cleveland, Texas. Oh my Cleveland, gosh, Texas. that is classic. That is yeah. one of the most well-known Indian stories of all time. And the funny part about that story is you ask different people, they all say the same story. It doesn't change. They no. talk about him going through the air duct, getting the bat, the whole nine yards. That is, I mean, that's about as true of a story as you get. The big problem was that, you know, a 190-pound, 200-pound, whatever he was, man, Going through an air duct, you're, you're going to leave a few broken tiles in the ceiling, things like that. So I, I'm not sure how one would think that they would uh, get away with that. That's I will say like, this. Jason Grimsley was built more like you than me. So I think he's closer to about 160, 170 pounds. If you put me through that air duct, I would probably fall through like something out of the office. You go crawling through there. That's probably like that woman from Walmart that they saw carrying the bags <laughs> in the store could you telegraph any more what you're going to do did jason grimsley do a test run on this i that's a I'm good question yes and that's a no that's classic august 8th 1981 the largest crowd ever to see in a major league baseball all-star game 72,086 people packed cleveland stadium to watch 
as the National League beat the American League five to four. Now I will say, I have a pennant. I wasn't there. I have a pennant from that All Star game. My dad was at that game. That he said that it was very electric at that contest. There was a ton of people, and I don't know this. Was this the first All Star game Cleveland Stadium hosted? Well, let me check here. Well, the Indians hosted the All Star game four times at Municipal Stadium, nineteen thirty five. 1954, 1963, and 1981. 54 and 63, only nine years apart. That wow. doesn't happen too frequently. Usually, baseball tries to spread around between different ballparks. They don't come back right away too often. That's true. And I think probably part of it is because of the size of the stadium. I yeah, bet I you most agree. of the stadiums that you look at that were hosting the All-Star game weren't the size of what the Cleveland Municipal was. So that's probably part of the reason they got it so often, just because of cash. And 1981, uh, the uh, Tribe, what a powerhouse they were. I'm sure that was one of many sellouts at the Municipal Stadium for baseball that year. <laughs> <laughs> I can only ma- can only imagine. That year, the Indians finished 52 and 51. That was a strike-shortened year, and they finished sixth in the AL East. So, one game above the Mendoza line. And I think that's the same year that Len Barker threw his perfect game. 81, you're right. Hmm. May 15th, 1981. Len Barker pitches his perfect game. Clearly, the lone highlight for the Indians in 1981, dare I say in the entire decade of the 80s. Yeah, you might be right on that. This is probably another one where we talked a few weeks ago when we had Mark Tromba on about how it seemed like there was a couple million people at the Indians' first game of progressive field. Yes. You talk about the Len Barker perfect game. Oh, Oh, that stadium was sold out. They were hanging from the rafters that night. That game, and then a 10-cent beer night. Might have been 5,000 people at the stadium the night of the perfect game, but who's counting? All right, move to August 11th, 1949. Rocker Eric Carmen of the Raspberries, and later of solo fame, is born in Cleveland. Wow. Ted, can you name any of Eric Carmen's songs? Yeah, if I go to Google, I could probably get them all. I I know he sings one of your favorite songs of all time. Oh, does he? Yes, he does. Does he sing COVID-19? No, that's the second favorite song. Oh, what is my favorite song? I'm curious. Hungry Eyes. Oh, she's got hungry Hungry eyes. eyes. Okay, we should probably stop here. And I can't disguise she's got hungry eyes. I believe that was in one of your favorite movies as well. Yeah. Dirty Dancing. Oh, wow. All right. I'll I'll watch that one tonight with my wife. (laughs) I think it's time, Ken. Let's close the book on this week in Cleveland history. That's going to wrap things up for another edition of Two Middle-Aged Men in Cleveland. Great interview with uh, Gerald Casala from Devo. What some great information talking about everything that happened with Devo, how they got started and everything involved with Kent State. A lot of interesting information that I really didn't know about. Yeah, Devo, one of the groups that's considered a one-hit wonder. But if you take a look at their contributions to rock music, they're really a very influential group and one that you might not think about until you really know more about their history. Yes, and how politically involved they were with what they did and yeah they were I would say they were kind of be considered fire starters for many other groups you know and obviously one thing that's big as well was their music video that was one of the first music videos that was on MTV and all that and that kind of certainly got them some fame as well but it kind of brought back a lot of memories for me and I imagine for many other people as they listen. Hey before we go we do want to take a moment here a legendary broadcaster from the Cleveland area passing away yesterday Dick Goddard from Channel 8, who has just been a legend, one of the longest-running broadcasters, maybe the longest the broadcaster with the longest run of anybody that I can think of off the top of my head, part of that group in the 1980s that just owned Cleveland television news with Robin Swoboda, Tim Taylor, Casey Coleman, and Dick Goddard. I mean, that was the newscast back then. They talk about everybody else fighting for second place. Well, at that time in Cleveland, everybody else was. Dick Goddard was on so long, I didn't realize there were other weather people 
in Cleveland until I flipped over to a station one time and saw Don Webster. Very influential man for many broadcasters. He was a person that gave back, no doubt. And he was very big on working with the APL for cats and dogs. Obviously, the other thing that many people don't realize that he did is for 43 years, he was the statistician for the Browns, for their radio broadcasts, which if you think about that, doing something for 43 years, and he did that for quite a long time up until a point where he had trouble seeing, which is, I believe, one of the reasons he didn't do it anymore. Certainly rest in peace, Dick. Thanks so much for everything you've done for the community, and it's certainly a sad day with his passing. What do you have on tap this week, Ken? We have, obviously, an opportunity to try to play golf if it ever stops raining. No way! Um, some Taekwondo with the kids, which is always fun to see them advance in belts. How about you, Ted? Not sure what we have this week. We're done with camp. Boys are home, and we are adjusting to that for the next little while, and we'll see how long that lasts and when they go back. Hopefully, they do go back. I, I know we don't get too involved in politics or things like that, but I will say I am hopeful that in-person classes is a, an option. I don't think it should be the only option, but I think it should be an option this fall for students because there are students who absolutely need that structure and that in-person instruction. And I can name three of them very quickly for you. <laughs> do, they, do their last names all start with a K? They, they do, actually, yes. I, I would agree with you on that whole realm, too. I hope that people have the option and that we can have a situation where we can do that. Because I understand exactly what you're saying. Not everybody learns the same and some people need different ways to learn. And in classroom was certainly one way that people could learn best. Well, it's ironic that we talk about Dick Goddard today because next week we will have another Channel 8 personality on with us, another weather personality on with us. Scott Sable will join us. He has quite the sports memorabilia collection. He's going to talk to us about that. He'll also talk about what it's like doing the weather forecasts from his basement in the middle of this COVID-19 situation that we are in. So that'll be interesting to talk to him about. And who knows what else we'll have, maybe another voicemail, but anything is possible. It's day-to-day on what we have. Well, Ken, uh, until next week, let's remind everybody... Ted, we're just two middle-aged men in Cleveland.